HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, You also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Melanie Masseran founder of Gia, a spirit-free aperitif designed to change the way we think about drinking and socializing. Gia launched this past June, and I've been excited to have her on the pod ever since I took one sip of that delicious bittersweet drink. If you haven't seen it, they're beautiful, beautiful bottles. Their social media is awesome. And honestly, like I did not do dry January because I just don't have that kind of willpower, but I don't need to do dry January just to be drinking Gia. So I was telling Melanie before we recorded, um, I'm a huge Campari kind of Aperol fan, but um, this is even a little bit better because it doesn't have that sweetness. So it's delicious with seltzer or tonic water, a splash of lemon, or just kind of on the rocks. Anyway, welcome Melanie. Hi. Hi. I, I don't usually do like a whole launch into the product. I know. I loved it. Before I said hello, but I was just like, I'm thinking I should have had a drink while, like I should have just made myself a little Gia while I was, um, while I was interviewing you, but now I'm going to have one right after. Yeah, we're okay. going to have one after. Exactly. So I'm so glad that you're on. Um, I've been watching and following since the beginning, I feel like, or what I as a consumer saw as the beginning, which I'm sure is not the beginning, um, but it really is, it's, it's a beautiful contribution, I think, to the world um, of non-alcoholic spirits, but also just products in general. So I'm thrilled that you're here. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit, you know, where you grew up, why why this happened, right? I mean, we all have our little stories and they all kind of link up to why we found what we found. So tell me a little bit about that. For sure. Uh, Gia, Gia is kind of this thing that like only makes sense when you look at it backwards for me. It was like it sort of just happened in a way that felt coincidental. But now that I look at, you know, how I've spent the first 30 years of my life, it all makes sense. Um, So I grew up 
in France, in between Lyon and the south of France, um, where, you know, my parents used to host all the time and my grandparents and especially my grandmother used to make all these low ABV drinks and she would make limoncello with lemons from her garden. And it's obviously it all sounds like so lovely and it, it truly <laughs> was. And uh, and so I was obviously very inspired by that. And, and it's only, you know, once you leave that, that you realize how much you miss it. Right. And when and did I, you leave? I came to the U.S. for college, so I went to Brown So uh, in 2008, and, um, you know, I started having stomach problems when I moved to the U.S. I think the whether it was the food quality or it was being on campus or I had always had stomach pains more than I think, um, I you know, most people, but it really got worse when I moved to the U.S., and it got me very interested in kind of the food system in America. You know, I worked for dining services um, for all four years of college which was an incredible experience. It was, you know, 10 cafes and, um, and then, you know, subsequently had a few jobs and ended up joining the team at Degin in New York. And, um, you know, I had, um, I had also kind of like lost my grandmother at that point. And, um, it was definitely as I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do, you know, I was obviously, just thinking about the world of food and the world of hospitality and how I really wanted to create something that was kind of in the realm of things that I, I, I could sustain for the next like five to 10 years. I wanted to kind of get off the startup circuit and do something that felt like it was really core to me and was like a life mission. And the only thing that always brought me back was kind of food and hosting and gathering people. And over the years, I had sort of realized that alcohol wasn't really for me. I thought maybe it was a trigger for kind of my stomach issues, which it turn, turns out that, you know, it definitely wasn't helping, but it wasn't the main thing. And so I had sort of slowly just stopped drinking altogether. And I realized I felt so much better, but I was always, you know... I feel like even if you're hosting and you're not drinking, you have someone pushing a drink on you. And I really wanted to create a brand and create a drink where it would be kind of uh, not a discussion. If I decided to order a Gia at dinner, no one would ask me anything. And now I'm like, I have so much compassion for vegans, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I feel like I used to always be like, oh, they're not eating butter. They're not eating this. They're not eating that. And now I, uh, I totally understand how they feel. It's like everyone always has a comment about their diet and it's really annoying. And I think with booze, it's like even more so because it truly still means to people that like you're not fun or you're not participating or you're boring or you're you know a little bit too straight and um and so I really wanted to kind of break those stigmas and create a brand that was loud and had a lot of personality and would want to make you partake and that's kind of how Gia came to be yeah and the thing is it really does I mean I you know that that thing that happens in the evening for me where I'm like it's cocktail time I, I don't need it's, it's like, I don't need the alcohol part. Like, it's not about self-medicating that for me. It's like the taste and, and the like, like diddle diddle kind of with the ice, you know, like there's like, you know, there's like that. a, there's like a, it's a ritual. It's a ritual. It's, it's similar. Like coffee is different for me because I do need the caffeine, but I like that cocktail-y squeeze of acid, a little bitter, a little sweet, you know. Um, and I haven't felt, I, I haven't felt like I've missed that at all with Gia. And I guess there, I mean, we'll talk about the sort of non-alk world and the market that you kind of entered into. I know that there are things out there that have been around. Um, they never, they always felt like a replacement for a real gin and tonic. This doesn't feel like a replacement for anything. It just feels like its own thing, which I think is something that you've you've clearly thought about and 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 we'll get there. Yeah. Yes, yes. That was very, very intentional. Actually, it was and and I think as a result, we're a little bit isolated in the category because um because we're not trying to be an analog specifically and we can talk a little bit more about that but yeah it was it was intentional to want to create a brand that was that would stand on its own and create something that would be different right well we have that I mean you know I don't know how much you know about the sauces but we definitely you know in I don't know if you know that I have five kids I don't know if anyone if, if I've talked about that on the podcast before but it's it's really, I always think about it when I think about Haven's Kitchen and the sauces because, you know, 
as human beings, our strengths are our weaknesses, just like flipped inside out, right? So you take someone who's highly competitive, that's a strength that can also be very alienating, right? So I think for brands that are trying to create new categories, right? We, you know, we aren't like, you know, we're not just like a better for you fill in the blank or a cookie made with blank instead of blank. Like we are actually something new that is a massive asset and a, and a huge opportunity, but it is also a liability and a challenge, right? Because it means that you now not only have to build awareness for your product, but you have so much explaining around it to do. And as we all know, consumers aren't, you have their attention for, you know, a quarter of a second or something like that. Um, so I, I feel your pain on the not being a replacement thing. When you were, um, so you went to college and it, it's cool that you worked in food service, um, just learning about that system. Were you interested so clearly you were interested in food. Were you interested in brands? Like, did you think that there was, was marketing in your, you know, future? Like how, how, how did the, you know, how did you end up kind of, did you enter dig in from a brand perspective or from a food systems perspective? That's a really good question. And one that I've actually never been asked before. I guess I never, I, I don't think that that was so intentional, to be honest, but I always had very strong opinions about all things aesthetic. Uh, and uh, and I, I, it, was not, it was not planned at all. You know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a ballerina and then I went to college and after I graduated, I worked in finance. And, but I always liked, you know, brands. When I was in high school, I worked at like a clothing shop and I always, you know, think that I was always very interested in um, design. That was always something I really loved, interior design. And... And I think when, when I joined Diggin, actually, uh, it was a lot more from a food system perspective and I would say hospitality standpoint. So I, uh, I was working for one of uh, Goldman Sachs' client at the time, American Eagle Outfitters, and it was just too big of a company for me. And I really coincidentally met the founder of Diggin because I sent a customer service email um, after a bad meal. And I said, you know, I love Diggin, but like here are five things I would have done better today because like you should probably know all these things were happening in the store. And it turned out that they had changed something that day was when they changed from three sides to two sides. Um, and it was still when Diggin had the the compartment plates, you know, the one that looks like kids plates. Yep, yep. Um, uh, which I later I, I later removed in my time there actually, but <laughs> and uh, the CEO uh, responded and he was reading all the emails because it was a big day for them and they expected a little bit of customer backlash and I think because my um, email was about like helping them and suggestions, he asked to get coffee and we got coffee and I got you know I, I got to hear the story from him and I. I really understood like what he was trying to build and and I was really interested. And so I joined in them. I think my title was strategy and I did a, a number of things at first that were like figuring out, you know, how to improve our delivery capacity. And, and it was kind of like random projects for him that like not as it was a small team at the time that had six restaurants. And so I would do a little bit of everything on an as needed basis. And then quickly, I think they were going through a fundraise and they said, okay, we're going to expand to Boston. And that's when I raised my hand, but it was very intuitive. And I said, what are we going to do about the brand identity? And they were like, what do you mean? You know, they were, they were only operators. There was no real marketing right. team. Yep. And then I said, well, here we have brand equity because everybody's known Diggin forever. We've been, you know, we've had stores for years and everything was built like slowly and by, by one by one, there's a lot of trust. But if we go into... Boston where there's you know sweet green and all of these other brands like they are very intentional about how you communicate with that customer really quickly and I don't think that if we show up with our current brand we're going to get the same results and uh that's when you know it was like a bit of a uh-oh moment and and Adam uh who's the CEO of Diggin was like okay great why don't you do that wow. <laughs> and so and so that's how I fell into marketing um wow but, and and subsequently actually creative director because he ended up letting me design some of the stores as well, which was a super great experience and very much impacted the, my, my future kind of professional endeavors. So, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, what, first of all, 
great on him for turning a customer service complaint into a head of marketing and a creative director. Good on you for giving some, you know, feedback. Um, okay. And then, and then did you go to Glossier after Dig In? Yes, exactly. Okay. So we had done the rebrand. I think by that point, Dig In had maybe like 18 or 20 something restaurants. So we had had a very intense few years. And um, I uh, I met with the team at Glossier and they were the kind of hot new downtown startup. And by that point, I think I was a lot more aware of how, you know, I like to work with brands. Uh, but I was still very much a generalist, I would say. And uh, I was also by that point, you know, maybe, I don't know, mid 20s and so I had been in the US for a number of years and I was missing home a little bit and the team at Glossier was looking for someone to open international for them in Europe and so that felt like the perfect bridge um, and it, things didn't quite pan out that way because it took me nine months to be able to join the team because you know Trump got elected as I was in the middle of my green card process it was just like a bunch of logistics that made it so that nine months later I joined the team at Glossier and and they were kind of like, we really are so excited to have you, but we've sort of deprioritized international and someone else is uh, kind of doing a little bit of that. And now, why don't you figure out retail? <laughs> you have a hospitality <laughs> background. So that's sort of how it came to be. It was one of those, I don't know, it was just not so planned. Um, but we sort of built Glossier like a hospitality group in the end. It was very different from what other direct-to-consumer companies were doing at the time. And it was very, uh, you know, you had brands like Warby Parker that had really set a new standard for how online experiences were supposed to be for customers. And they had built all of these stores that were super consistent. And it felt like they were perfectly integrated between online and offline and, and all of that. And when we looked at Glossier and our goals for the company, we wanted to do something that was really different. We wanted to really incorporate design as the DNA of the company. And I feel like every brand says that, but then doesn't do it. And, you know, we really wanted it to be an acquisition tool. And so Glossier was built almost like you would a hospitality group. It was hyper-localized stores um, that were meant to be busy at all time. It was prime time all the time. And uh, it was as offline and as curated as you, you, you could, you know, the way that we drafted even... Um, like employee training was about how you stand next to someone to make them feel a certain way and and you know I'm assuming it's part of the reason why the Glossier stores for instance are not open now in the pandemic is because even though they would be allowed to it you can't have the, the Glossier experience, experience yep. offline yep. and it's, I know yeah it's so interesting that you're you're talking about this because there's been I've been you know a lot of what I'm sort of spending not work time doing is helping, um, and, and a lot through this podcast too, is helping people with brick and mortar four wall businesses, trying to figure out CPG and trying to figure out product. And there's been sort of a lot of discussion about, you know, it's, it's not easy to pivot. It's not easy to pivot in a pandemic. And there are, you know, it's just fundamentally a different type of business. But what I keep saying is that like the CPG, especially like the digitally native product world, they need us. They need the hospitality people. They need the people that like are used to looking at people in the eye and making them feel taken care of. And they, there's a, there's been a little bit of a missing chip um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of what digitally native companies talk about is that customer experience and how it's so critical and it is, but it's like, there's like a, a little bit of a warmth missing, like the people factor. And I'm really excited that a lot of my friends in brick and mortar, you know, restaurants and hospitality businesses are figuring out their way into the world of products because I think it's going to make a lot of really interesting stuff happen. Um, and it's funny that you, that, you know, Glossier, of course, being Glossier, kind of conceptualized that early on and knew that, you know, a lot of the experiences of these digitally native brands are just so, they're cold and they're, they're contrived. Um, and even stores, like why, you know, a lot of brands, I think, try to figure out what's going to make someone shop for us online? What is the thing that's getting them to connect with us online? Similarly, what is the thing that's getting them to connect with us in real life? And those are two different things. 
and their consumers at different times and possibly even different consumers entirely. Um, but all of that's really cool. And now I want to know how Gia <laughs> came out of, I mean, it makes sense. Um, but what, what, what actually happened? I mean, at one point were you like, okay, I'm going to make this drink. My thing, this part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so when I left Glossier, um, it was, you know, at the end of 2018 and I was, first of all, I was a bit burnt out, not because of anything other than the fact that I had spent 10 years working like a crazy person in New York city. And I left Glossier, um, and I was, I decided to go freelance for a little bit. Um, and at that point I also like my stomach problems had gotten worse. So I wanted to take a bit of time off and recalibrate a little bit. And, um, I was completely not I was completely not drinking pretty much. And I started doing specifically that um, consulting for, you know, omni-channel brands or digital, digitally native brands that wanted to figure out what their third dimension was. And so I was consulting for brands like StockX and, you know, really building these challenges. And, and I was buying me time to figure out what my next thing would be, but I really wanted the next thing to be the thing. And so I was very much taking my time and, I, you know, I loved food and I would, you know, I didn't really have an office. So I would like often just like work from coffee shops or restaurants in New York City. And, and I was just kind of realizing how difficult it is to do that and realizing all the new creative kitchens, you know, were in Brooklyn because operating in New York is just very difficult and is very expensive. And I was like, wow, like it's crazy. I was also noticing that often I had friends that said, I don't want to go out to dinner because I don't want to drink. Or, um, and I was also noticing often that there was another person at the table now that was also not drinking if I said that I wasn't drinking. So if I kind of made that first step, I'd actually have other people pass on the wine or the booze. And I thought it was, it was kind of in the back of my mind. And as I was, I was actually on a trip to, um, Milan for, for design week. And, um, I kind of got into a little argument with my friend at lunch because I, I wanted to order another pasta and he wanted to order another Aperol spritz and someone who, who, uh, you know, works in food as well. And we started bickering about it. And I sort of went on a rant about the kind of like alcohol and big elk and how they've invested, you know, tens of millions of dollars into making us think that booze is the life of the party. And they get like this huge favoritism because they don't even have to disclose what's on in their product and why is, an Aperol like neon orange, there's not even a single bit of orange in it. And, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I went into this long trade and he looked at me and he was like, I think we figured out your next job. <laughs> and, and it just hit me. And I, I, at the time I was really busy with a lot of clients and I came back to New York and I sort of took it on like a consulting project. And it's, I started realizing that there were brands that were doing that. There were a lot of brands in the UK, which is kind of the last place where I would have intuitively thought that this would be successful because it's boozing is so ingrained in the culture. I mean, they start before dinner there, you right. know, it's like you right. go to the pub before going to dinner. And, and so I, it really piqued my interest. And I also realized that of all the brands that were out there, there's none that really hit the spot for me. And I was like, where are all the fun brands? Like I grew up, you know, with like, they were like the loudest products in my grandmother's kitchen. It was like, it was like, really, you would just look at a box and be like, this is so pretty, even if you didn't know how to read yet. And I wanted to create that. I wanted to create, I wanted to have a bottle that you would just want to grab, even if you didn't know what it is, which is what everyone told me not to do. They said, you need to explain, people are not going to know what this is. This is a very niche product, like aperitif, no one can even write it. And you need to explain all of that on the front label. And, and I really tried. And then I was like, this is super ugly. I'm going to remove all of it and do a really funny hat for my bottle so that people will be like, wow, this kind of looks like a person. I'm going to grab it and look closer. And so that's kind of how the year bottle came to be. <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? Because I think that there is a, I mean, in my little research, you know, I had on um, Marisa from United Sodas a couple of like, maybe months ago now, but she was saying similarly, like on their soda can, it's just a big, beautiful color. And there's a, you know, there's a back, there's a nutrition panel. She, you know, her point is the consumer doesn't need non-GMO, Whole30 compliant you know, blah, 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 on a, on a can of sparkling water. 
right? Like everyone knows that it's, right. that it's whole 30 and there is nothing in there to not be keto. Like it doesn't, there's, it's, everything is so over-labeled. And I think we've taken so much discovery out of it because you're right. All the advisors out there are saying you have to put everything on that front label. I mean, we similarly, we have this little pouch. We don't have that much space to write all of this stuff. So getting to like, what is critical and in your case, like what, like you said, what's going to make someone grab this? And we feel the same way. What, what's going to make someone grab this and then take that extra beat to figure it out? Th- there's no question that there are people that don't know what these words are or don't know how to spell them or, you know, aren't willing to spend the money to try it if they haven't gotten more, you know, either had the opportunity to try it or gotten sort of more data points. Um, but I think there is a little bit of, I think this over-labeling and this, it, it's dumbed it down to the point where a lot of the stuff doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, you know, for sure. Anyway. And it's a lot of it, it's like, if what I was trying to create was like a product that would be a catalyst for a moment, this is not a nutrition, you know, based formula. It's it's a healthy drink, but I would absolutely never market it as such. You're not saying um, it's like a functional beverage, right? No, yeah. it's it's not a functional beverage, and it's it was not designed to be a functional beverage. And it's also even though it's you know it's vegan and it's no added sugar and it's all of these things. I would never say that it's a healthy drink because no one cares about having a healthy drink if they want to ha- be having a good time, right? And so I want to create a drink that's really delicious and that's really craveable and that makes people... I want to create a brand that is people associate with celebration. So I want people to have Gia uh, when they're ending the work day, like you said, and I want it to hit the spot just like alcohol would. But, you know, it's and it can be if you're a label reader, you feel like you trust it. You know, the other thing that we never talk about is that a lot of the um, non-alcoholic brands out there use flavors and they use, you know, distillation processes so that they can be like zero calories and all of that. And it's like our ingredient costs are about three to four times higher than all of these brands because we only use fresh juices and uh, extracts that we make custom to have a 0.0% formula. And I've not, that's not even written on our website, you know, it's just... It's just the way that we want to be building the brand and the way that we want to be building the product. And I think it's just raising the, the standard for how food should be in our world. Um, and so it's kind of a challenge, a personal challenge that I've set for myself. If I'm going to be doing this, I want to create a company that is as sustainable as possible in its ethos and in its products. And um, and so, you know, we wouldn't market it as healthy, but we wanted to create something that would be just obviously healthy, obviously, you know, designed thoughtfully, but that would be happy overall. Yep. I totally get it. Okay. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to get into details about everything. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Casella's Prosciutto Speciale is made in America following the time-tested traditions of Italy's Norcini, the itinerant butchers who traveled the countryside preparing, seasoning, and aging meat. Just like those dedicated artisans of old, Casella's Prosciutto starts with the highest quality ingredients. They exclusively use rare breed heritage pigs, including Duroc, Tamworth, Berkshire, and Large Black, which are pasture-raised by small family farmers across the U.S., Their slow, on-the-bone curing process follows the standards of the Italian Prosciutto Consortia and produces consistently gorgeous results. Casella's Prosciutto is elegant. It is marbled, delicate, and nutty. They value that each ham is unique from the next, showcasing the subtle difference between breeds, farms, sizes, and pigs. Casella's believes in the quality of ingredients, good pork, salt, and thyme. It's that simple. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. I'm back with Melanie Masseran from Gia. Okay, so um, when, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, 
your ingredients and your ingredient costs. By the way, I, I don't know. Is it just me? I feel like bitters are medicinal. Like I, when I have a stomach ache, I'll drink a little Gia. Just FYI. I'm sure you aren't going to market it as like an aid for ailing anything, but I don't know. I like, you know, cause you get those bitters in the jar, you know, in the little dropperlets. Like I'd rather have something that tastes delicious. So just for sure. You know. It also helps me. I think that, um, I don't know if we're like, it's just really hard. There's only so much that you can say in terms of function for your product, but you know, it's, it's all natural. Like if you have a dropper of bitters, like the reality is it's a tincture, so it's very concentrated, but it still has a lot of sugar and a lot of booze in it. It's like 50% of that is alcohol. So that still kind of irritates, you know, your digestive system in some way. And then it's also very, very sweet. So, um, so Gia doesn't have any of that and, but it's, it's all extracts, you know, really good things. So it does also, there's a, there's a lot of ginger in it, which is probably what's helping soothe exactly. you. Exactly. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the bottle and the, the goals for the brand. Um, you know, how long did it take you to develop the recipe and where did you start thinking about the recipe and how did you figure out sort of building the supply chain for it? Yeah, so um, we found this incredible formulator uh, who walked into the meeting and said, I've been waiting to get an email like this because I believe non-alcoholic aperitifs are the future of beverages. And oh so my I, was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, like this feels like kismet, you're hired. Um, and at the time I was still doing kind of that on the side and, you know, I was like working for a client and then like Venmoing the formulator. <laughs> and, right. And, um, and it took us a full year. It was very hard. There was a number of, uh, kind of food challenges because it's very hard to keep a non-alcoholic formula that has such potent extracts stable. And then there's also just a flavor profile issue. And oddly, and maybe that's hard for the future, but I knew exactly what I wanted Gia to taste like because it was an aggregation of all of the tasting notes that I was hearing my friends describe when they were ordering wine. So Gia does not taste like wine, it's bitter, but it was like, people would say, I want a white, I want it to be dry, I want it to be not too sweet, I want it to be minerally, I want it to be, you know, certain things. And and I was like, how do we recreate these flavors? Something that is dry and that's the perfect first drink right before you have a dinner. Something that will not compete with the food, that will just enhance it and also kind of prepare your palate and your taste buds perfectly for that meal. Like I'm all about like honoring these small moments to make them better. And, and so really the apéro time, which is the very it's it's the aperitif, but it's to describe the occasion of the aperitif. So right before a meal, when you really disconnect, it takes you from work into play. That was the moment that I wanted to bottle in a way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you totally did, and and it took a year. I mean, I'm so there's the formulating, and then there's the actual like building of the supply chain. Like, how did you? And obviously, you don't have to like give us your formula, but like, how did you finally? And you said that it's expensive, right? So obviously there were some trade-offs you had to make. Like what was sort of the biggest challenges, I guess, about, you know, for example, in for us, we can't use, we're literally, it's illegal to use fresh ginger or garlic or lemongrass in our sauces. They, um, yeah, we have to use frozen. They're fresh frozen, but um, f- those garlic especially and lemongrass are like harbingers for botulism so you like it's just an fda law um that we can't use them so it was it was an easy sacrifice for us to make in the sense that like we would not have a company if we didn't make that sacrifice (laughs) so you know we we quickly transitioned and there are there are a lot of you know benefits to not having botulism in your product but um you know, they're, they're, everyone makes compromises as they're industrializing something, right? And and making something that is going to be the same. You know, even now, pouch to pouch, our sauce is a little different because we're using real ingredients. And sometimes it's a little thicker and sometimes it's a little thinner. And that's just kind of the way it's going to go unless you're putting something in a can or you're putting something in a bottle and you're boiling it or you're you know, retorting it or whatever it is, there's always going to be a little bit of that 
natural discrepancies. So I'm curious, what were the big challenges for you? Um, how did you figure stuff out? And, and what, you know, where did you kind of draw the lines for yourself? Yeah, we have the same issue in terms of that every batch is a little bit different. Some are more bitter than others. And that's because, um, you know, some of our products are seasonal. So some of the, for instance, the grapes, you can't grow grapes year round, really. It's like there's a harvest time. And so we have to contract enough for the year. But we had no idea. Like we launched middle of 2020. And so we had no idea what our volume was going to be like. And it got to a point where there wasn't enough grapes from that specific farm we were buying grapes from to make the extract. Because it's also, for instance, um, very few people make like a, a grape juice or, you know, that's in the way that we want because it's either used for wine or so you have a lot. We have the issue on the manufacturing side where we need a facility that will be food grade, but that will have a bottling line like an alcohol line. And so that's really like the filter is like shaped like a martini glass at this point, because you have very few factories that have both. And even we have that, that too. Understand. Isn't that funny? Yeah, we didn't yeah. have there's no one that does pouch filling and high pressure pasteurization. Right. So we ended up having to build it. Yeah. Yeah. The HPP, I could talk about all day, but, but the, the, so, and, you know, we also have a cap that is applied manually and we have two labels. It was like, I would say we didn't really make that many compromise because I was very uncompromising. I was like, if we're going to be launching in this crazy year, we have to put our best foot forward. We have to have the best product that we can have. And now, you know, we were talking with, we brought on some advisors who have more beverage experience and they're like, Melanie, your margins. And I'm like, what? Know, right? what, what about my margins? <laughs> They're like, it's, you can't, this is not, you have to, you know, figure it out. And thankfully, you know, a lot of this gets better as we grow and Gia, um, you know, we have consumers that have been coming back for it, people that are hooked to the product. And so we've been able to build a little community and Gia has grown, um, you know, more than we anticipated because of the pandemic. We had, we had very much like reviewed down our expectations. So, so it's been, it's been super great to see like such a strong holiday season. And it's, it's allowing us to build more of a business now and, and kind of invest in the future of the company. But it was a little bit scary a few months ago when, when yeah, we realized sure. that, like, you know, we were pr probably not charging enough for a product. And it's a question we get a lot also is like, wow, $33 for a bottle because people compare it to a bottle of wine, but you have 10 servings in a bottle of Gia, not five or six or seven. And it's, everything is extracts. There's no ethanol, you know, there's no, it's, it's, it's it's very expensive product to make. And it, once you realize that you're investing every dollar that's in it into your health and into, you know, what something that goes into your body, I think people are just um, more willing to understand the pricing. If you also look at the category, we're actually not priced that much, you know, it's like anywhere between 30 and $40 and we're at 33 per bottle. That's the most expensive price if you only buy one. Um, but it, it's just hard to justify. And, you know, we also have to ship every product and we're, we're dealing with Oh, FedEx I know. And, <laughs> oh, yes, I know. It, it's like we're shipping like these tall glass bottles around the country with liquid in them. That's, that's a challenge of its own. But I would say in terms of supply chain, I've been very uncompromising and, and the thing that we compromise on is our margin. And we're really hoping that, you know, we have more and more people buying Gia so that we can improve our margins with volume. But now we're sort of getting to the, to the point where we're outgrowing certain farms and we have to figure out consistency while working with, you know, grapes that will be grown on different farms and, and, you know, have very different terroir. And so uh, that's the next challenge for us. But I, I think it will be an educational challenge with the customer because we're not anytime soon going to go into big flavor houses to try to figure out the consistent vendor. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, and for what it's worth, I think that, you know, as long as you're starting a new thing and you're creating something that is genuinely differentiated and you can speak directly to your consumers, which like a seed lip couldn't do when they were coming of age, right? Like the price matters a lot less in a way now. And, you know, the margin just gives you the comfort level so that you'll be able to do what you need to do from a marketing perspective. Um, so I'm all about starting high and then eventually lowering the price if you can. Um, but that's just, you know, my two cents. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we didn't know that before to be, yeah. to be candid. Yeah, no, I, wish. I mean, it's, you know, you can still, you can like eke it up a little bit and explain why I feel like you're still, it's still early enough. Um, 
But then in terms of the launch, um, so, I mean, when were you planning on launching it? And obviously you weren't planning on launching in a pandemic, but was there ever kind of a, I'm imagining that you had a, an omni-channel plan coming from sort of an omni-channel marketing background. You probably planned on being in restaurants and being in bars and building awareness that way. Um, and instead, it sounds like mostly you've been doing it digitally. Um, is that right? Yes, that's, that's correct. It's in fact, um, so right now, about 90% of our business is online. But we had planned on doing a friends and family launch that was only offline because I really wanted people, I wanted to, the challenge of creating word of mouth at scale, I wanted people to discover the product with the taste first, like really um, tasting it and being like, oh, are you sure there's no booze in this, you know, or like, and for it to really just hit the spot to help build that app, that habit on premise. It turns out that actually new habits are formed at home. And so perhaps it wasn't such a detriment that we launched during the pandemic, even though there were a number of hurdles that we had to overcome. But um, but the plan was to launch first in restaurants, really build uh, the trust uh, of the hospitality industry, and then launch online with a bit more storytelling um, over the summer. So when, you know, and also in anticipation of the pandemic, we had, you know, we had moved our packaging from like China to the US and then and then uh, we uh, we ended up you know all the restaurants closed mid-march and we didn't really know what to do and we kind of made a quick pivot to a digital first approach right and how I mean how are you building awareness digitally is it just is it mostly press and ads it's mainly press it's a lot of um, it's a lot of word of mouth still which is really great I think we you know I'm if there's one thing that we really wanted to do and that we've succeeded in doing is that people are proud to drink Gia. And that's something that is, um, I think the hardest, the, 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 the most difficult challenge, the biggest challenge for us will be how do you destigmatize not drinking? How do you compete with brands that uh, really want you to believe that booze is the life of the party? And I think people are like, you know, cheering to Gia um, in a way that, that is, that's really nice. Um, and so that's a lot of people have been posting about it on Instagram and um, also people have been gifting Gia a lot, which is something that, you know, it's like, if I need to pick me up, I'll go into our Shopify and I'll read the gift notes from that day from customers. I read all of them because it's like, it's a really thoughtful gift. And it's not just a gift for your newly pregnant friend. It's like a gift for someone that might want to be, you know, might feel a bit lonely at home during these times. You have, you can tell a lot of people gifted after they've had a conversation with someone and they want to send them a little pick me up. There's, um, it's just a very, it's a very well-intentioned, well-meaning gift. And so um, we're definitely, our gift notes are like just full of love. You oh, know? I love that. Okay, so speaking of, um, I was in your Instagram um, while I was sort of writing up my show questions. And I saw something about sort of, you know, creating a private digital space, like a chat room, something like, I, I feel like you are very thoughtful about, creating this community and it, you know, it does feel like you are very intentional about who, who these people are and what they have in common and why they would choose Gia and why they would choose to share Gia and send Gia. So I'm a little curious about curating that community. What was the sort of the chat room? Um, how did that work? you know, was it too early for something like that? Or is it, has it taken off? Like, I'm just kind of curious about it. Yeah. So, uh, we, you know, we wanted to learn more about our customers and we also wanted to, um, like I'm, even in these times, it feels like Instagram is a little bit like we post and then our customers receive, but there's not much of an exchange. And so I really wanted to learn from people. I had a hunch that, um, it was not necessarily kind of like your Instagram millennial consumer that was drinking Gia based on the very, very high number of text messages that we got and the way that people talk to us. And I said, I want to learn more about our customers. I have a feeling we have a much older customer base as well. And so 
we I also really wanted to figure out a way to approach dry January that was not about a challenge and that was not about um, not drinking for 30 days and then downing a bottle of wine on February 1st. I really wanted to figure out how dry January and these times like, could just be about renegotiating our overall relationship with alcohol, whether it's not drinking on a Tuesday or just like drinking more mindfully with every drink. And I, I you know, I felt like as a brand, I didn't want to put that pressure on our customer to like not drink for a month. It felt very salesy. It was like the challenges. And so, you know, I think I kind of did something that I'm usually like less comfortable with. And we wrote this post on Medium that was like, this is why I don't drink. What about you? And a dry January, let just, let just open the conversation about what it means to not drink and about sobriety in general, because it doesn't have to be binary and it doesn't have to be forever and all of these things. And so we decided let's open this chat room on uh, a platform called Geneva, which is, it's like a mix between Slack and Clubhouse and it's new and, um, you know, a I have friends that work there and so I had been um, testing it out uh, with them, friends from Glossier and so and so we thought why not let's open it up for 30 days and see why people are coming um, to Gia and also just, just give them better access to us directly because I was getting a lot of DMs personally from some of our customers wanting to share their experience and and I thought, why don't we involve, you know, why don't we meet our most engaged users, the one that will um, that will participate and then let's involve them in the development process for our next products. And so um, what I realized, which was really interesting, is that people actually don't come to Gia for sobriety. They didn't really care to talk about dry January, um, but they wanted to share a lot of inspiration images and that lifestyle about, you know, Italy and celebrating. And they sh- we, we shared so many, you know, design, you know, chats. And we have, you know, 180 people or maybe 200 people on on the platform we removed the link though because we wanted to keep it small um and it's still open but i think it's dormant until there's kind of a reason for it to be but it was quite active in january and i was able to have a lot of one-on-ones with people and and i think that that depth like really informed like the planning for the year ahead and and how we'll continue to build not only our product development roadmap but also just how we really how we really involve our our user base from the very beginning. So we'll be reopening um, uh, Geneva uh, in a few weeks, actually, because we are getting um, a couple thousand samples of our next product. And I want our customers to try it first. Yeah. So that's, first of all, that's very cool. Um, You know, we're similarly like very excited for we're launching something completely new for holiday and we're just super excited to like give it to our you know our top just our most excited consumers and let them play with it and figure it out and you know it's it's not a refrigerated sauce so um it's going to be fun but um in terms of you know I think this is something, you know, a lot of people who are starting things listen to this and people who have already and people who are thinking about it. But a lot of, you know, as founders, I mean, you said two things in the last couple of minutes that were really interesting. One is it's not necessarily millennials. Um, it's probably, I mean, I'm 48. I would imagine there's a lot of my my demographic in there. Like we are design oriented. We do like a cocktail Um I think I probably match up with your core consumer in a lot of ways. Um, But secondly, you know, we also think we know not only who is coming to the brand, but why. And I remember for those of you who haven't heard, I did a podcast with Dr. James Richardson, I think like two years ago, and he wrote a book called Ramping Your Brand. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about insights and and data and research, and there's not that much research or data that you have to do. What you do have to do early on as an emerging brand is figure out there are five reasons why people could be coming to Gia, right? Similarly, there, there are five reasons there why people could be coming to Haven's Kitchen. And we think we know how to rank those reasons it's always really interesting to actually put it out there. What is the reason why you're coming to this brand? And that will determine not only, you know, the way that you market it, right? If you, if, if everyone was like, because I love alcohol and this is the only way I can do dry January, that would be a very different story than what you got, but that's not why people were coming. And that, that's a huge insight because then you know how to talk about it. Right. And, 
I think a lot of brands miss that because we think we think we know, um, but we don't ask. And all it is is doing Instagram polling. You know, why? Why do you like us? And and how do you use us? And and not only does it inform sort of like you said how you talk about it, but what your next products are. You know, for instance, we we got. You know, we could be, I like you because you're flavor forward. I like you because you're fresh. I like you because you're woman owned. I like you because, you know, you're, you're in a pouch. The overwhelming response is I like you because it makes cooking convenient. It was convenient, convenient, convenient in every poll we did in every different way we asked the question. Yeah. They also like the other things, but they really like convenience. And that is now we talk about convenience all the time and we, and our products, the new ones that we're making are all about saving people time, you know, and, and making cooking more convenient. There is all the other stuff too, but I think it's like your primary sort of selling prop, you know? Yeah. Really interesting. Um, okay. I have one final question because I think it's really interesting and I also think it's very brave and I have never done it. But your email, when you write to you, you get an auto reply. And and, no, no, I think this is really fascinating. And I think this is really cool for other founders. It's, it's, it's brave, right? You get an auto reply and it's basically like, I mean, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be hopping onto this in, in two seconds sort of for like mental health and emotional health reasons, right? You can tell me more about it. And if you need this, this is that. If you need sales, this is that. If you need press, this is that. Um, For me, you've responded to all of my emails, so I'm going to keep emailing you. But I'm curious (laughs) how, you know, I think a lot of us dream about not not being as attached, um, not feeling the need to be so responsive all the time to everything, um, sort of those boundaries and our, you know, emotional well-being. I'm curious um, how that came about, how it's working, and just your thoughts around it. For sure. I, it's funny. It's actually the only question in our outline. I didn't really know what you meant, but now I do. I wrote your I should... email, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I point. thought <laughs> you were going to ask me to share my email address, which like, I'm no. totally open to doing, given that I don't answer emails. <laughs> right. No, I wrote um, on, on the questions I wrote, that feels liberating. Like, yeah. you know, I'm, it's the last question. It's very funny. And because it does. And I'm like, I, for some reason, it makes me like nervous to think about doing for some reason. And I was so nervous to do it. So, so for background, my email response is something along the lines of, thank you so much for your email. I read all of, I real, I read all emails, but I'm, I only respond to the ones that are business critical. And here are a few people in the company that can give you a much faster response rate with kind of the direct contacts. Um, and it's, you know, I think we just got to a point where something has to give. We For the whole year, Gia was a team of three people. Uh, hopefully that changes soon. But um, I actually tested this before before launching Gia. And it was like, I'm super swamped trying to launch Gia. And it was like a link to our landing page. And, um, you know, I'm, I apologize if I'm a bit slow to respond. And how you can help is like, give us a follow, sign up for email, you know, and, and forgive me for the delay. And... People were like really responding. They were like, let me know how I can help. It was often like, you don't need to respond, but let me know how I can help. And you realize you get so many requests for like informational interviews. And I'm definitely someone who always says yes. And now I just can't, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm like a marketing team of one and I was like fundraising and doing all these things. And I can't be entering all these emails. Like first thing in the morning, I have over 200 and, and then my team has questions and I don't have time to be with them. And and then I, you know, work until midnight every night. And it, um, I started having really severe carpal tunnel from like just, you know, working from my dining table the whole year. And it was like really stressing me out. I'd started to lose sleep at night and I had like these shooting pains all over my right arm and then all over my left arm and then all over my back and my neck. And then I finally went to a neurologist and she said, you have bad nerve damage on your hand. You need to stop 
emailing. And so my team was really great and really jumped in to help me like draft the most important ones, but I was really falling behind. And and I realized there's never a time when my hand is going to feel better and I'm going to be like, yes, I will get back to all these emails because a lot of them are like people that have figured out that my email is like my first name at company um, and that are trying to sell me something. Um, you know, I have a press team that is so on top of it that I don't really, I see them. I don't need to respond first. Um, restaurants trying to buy Gia, like definitely don't worry. We will respond to you within 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, four seconds. Yeah. And anything else is like, I like, I don't need to be getting 10 different like requests for partnerships. Like we don't really do partnerships and I want to do like one or two per year that are really reaches that I'll want to grab. So I'll usually draft the email and then anything that's important I'll respond to, but, but I, I'm not kind of jumping on. Um, so it feels liberating. I, I went back and forth a lot on it. I was like, you know, I, I definitely had the moment where I was like, wow, I've never felt this in my life, but I do feel like it's the, the way that it's worded is really important because a lot of men have made fun of me for it. A lot of potential investors and they were like, huh, interesting. And I'm like, if you had that other response, people would be cheering for you, but you know, I'm a girl. So, um, so I get a different message and it's kind of the first time where I've felt that dissonance in a way. Yeah. But it has been very liberating. And do you forward them when you see them? Like, do you forward it if something comes over the email and it, and you know that it could go to someone else, do you just hit forward and someone else on the team grabs it? Yeah, yeah. I definitely, yeah. I read all my emails. Like there's no, like it's the first thing I do, you know, we have like a forwarding system in place and it just, there's just emails I don't need to respond. Like I don't need to respond if also often we're several people on the team, you know, my, it's, we have a system. Every email is read. And if I don't respond, it means like either yes or I don't need to or it's not business critical. Yeah. No, I think that's really smart. And I think you're right about the gender piece because I, you know, and again, I I am on the older side and I do interview and I meet a lot of founders that are younger. And there is something about younger women where they feel like more entitled to their boundaries. Um, it's something that was not a part of my education as, as a female, right? We were definitely not, that was rude to have a boundary. It was, you know, impolite not to be so grateful that anyone looked at you, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I mean, I I felt like I was born in like 1875, (laughs) but really it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive shift. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's very cool. And I just was curious about how it happened and also just the system behind it, because you do have to have an organized system behind it in order to not feel anxious that stuff is getting lost, which is yeah, like no, nothing is getting exactly. lost. It's, it's, if anything, now nothing is getting lost. That's essential. Whereas before it was just too much. And like, I use superhuman and I'm super type A, like there's no, you know, there's nothing is getting lost. It's just, I don't need to spend an hour a day like drafting soft nose, you know, because a lot of, a lot of our time is that now. And I would rather spend that hour with my team. I definitely feel the same way. And it, you know, I do feel the need to sort of be like, thank you so much, but la, 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 you know, um, which, you know, is a waste of everyone's time. Okay. Well, Melanie, um, everyone who hasn't tried Gia or seen the bottles, um, go to it's drink Gia, Gia, mm-hmm. G H I A. Um, and go check out their Instagram. Um, Definitely, it's for me, it's been a wonderful addition to my evening activities. And um, I thank you for creating such a thoughtful product because it really is, it's beautiful and um, not just on the outside. So thank you so much. And thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity today. Yes, my pleasure. Amanda, thank you for being um, such a good engineer and for keeping us all functional. Um, I will be back next week. I'm actually having an interesting conversation about hiring and um, what that's like, not only during the pandemic, but just in general, best practices for hiring, best practices for onboarding. Um, A lot of us are trying to build our teams right now and, you know, how to make that system as 
um, clear and as concise for both the team that you currently have and the people that you're bringing on as possible to avoid unhiring, which is probably the worst, you know, experience for everyone. Um, so Melanie, thank you. Amanda, thank you. And I'll be back next week uh, with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.